Accounting firm owners, if your firm can only grow as fast as you can find the time to take on new clients, you're not alone. Fortunately, Dark Horse CPAs has built a platform-style CPA firm that will transform your practice with the technology, resources, staffing, qualified inbound leads, and community that will enable you to spend your time growing your practice, serving clients, and doing more of what you love. Stay tuned to learn more about how Dark Horse CPAs is saving public accounting one firm at a time. If you'd like to earn CPE credit for listening to this episode, visit earmarkcpe.com, download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. Continuing education has never been so easy. And now, on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Oh My Fraud. This is our true crime podcast where our criminals are more likely to be defrocked than our victims are to be decapitated. I am Greg Kite. And I am Monsignor Caleb (laughs) Newquist. Welcome, Monsignor. Peace be with you. (laughs) And with you as well. So, Caleb, you're you're not Catholic, Correct, uh, but you. But I like to think of you as Catholic adjacent. I am Catholic adjacent. Nice, be- because your because your wife is actively Catholic. Correct. <laughs> awesome. So yes. here's the here's a pop quiz for you. Uh, can you can you list the seven deadly sins? Uh, bonus points if you can get them in order because there's actually an official order. There's actually an order. There Ooh. is. Yeah. I, I I won't get the bonus, but I'll give it. A, I'll I'll do my best. Okay. Uh, uh, greed. Yes. Lust. Yes. Sloth. Yep. Wrath. Yep. Gluttony. Yep. Pride. Yeah. You got the. I think I know the one you haven't said, and I don't even have. I, somehow, for some reason, I don't even have the list in front of me. Uh, oh, envy, the envy. You got him. That's seven. That wasn't in order, and that's awesome because I I feel like I set our audience up for me to go. Here is the correct order. I don't know. Google it. It's on. It's on the internet. That's right in front of you. Well, why um, is there an order? I think it's because uh, because they're they're ordered in terms of like severity severity because oh. I believe I believe that pride if I'm not mistaken pride is the number one sin mm. um, and if it was up to me gluttony would be the very bottom one because I because I love me a good you know the uh, like the Brazilian meat on a skewer all you can eat oh, places sure. those don't sure. seem sinful at all to me I, yeah. I I have no conscience about those I mean I think. My my theology is a little rusty, but if pride is number one, that kind of makes sense because of the morning star, you know? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Right? That's, yep. That was, you know, if, yeah. you, if you go all the way back to that. <laughs> the devil. That was, yeah, that's right. That was the first one. Yeah. So, okay, sure. Yeah, there you go. Okay. Kind of makes sense. So, anyway. so, so then here's the follow-up question. Did you have all seven of those locked and loaded because A, we are preparing for this podcast and I think I gave it away that I was going to ask you that question or B, because you just know them because you're a smart guy or C, because you know them from watching the 1995 blockbuster bill uh, film Seven starring Brad Pitt, Morgan Freeman and the pre-canceled Kevin Spacey? Uh, I would say it's probably D, all of the above. <laughs> okay. 
pre-canceled Sp- Kevin Spacey, okay. uh, David Fincher film. <laughs> oh, look at you going deep on that cut. Oh I, yeah, I got. Yeah. Oh yeah, I it's got a great. Cuts. It's a great film. It's a great film. Um, What's in the box? I mean, I still say oh, that. Pretty brutal. <laughs> So the uh, but but here's the weird thing to me. I, I mean, kind of weird. The a weird thing to me about the seven deadly sins is that fraud isn't one of them. Uh, stealing mm. isn't one of them, even right. though that's the eighth commandment. Um, the easy connection between the seven deadly sins and fraud is greed. Yep, sure. And we've seen that in other cases. We looked at greed, and and, and not only have we seen it. But I think that we have come to terms with the fact that greed, to at least some degree, is an ever-present part of the pressure uh, side of the fraud triangle. That we're never we're never completely devoid of greed. We that's you know having more money, having more stuff. That's always a desire that we have. Whether or not it's it's a huge thing or not is is a different story. But it's all. I think it's always there. So real quick, yeah. Will you? Just in case people don't, I just referenced the fraud triangle. In case yes. some of our listeners uh, don't, if that's a new concept, would you just give a quick basics on the fraud triangle? I'd love to, Greg. The it's triangle, so okay. three sides can be acute uh, isosceles or uh, come on, math Ob- obtuse. Obtuse could be any of them. It's just three sides. And I suppose, uh, you know, they, they all vary in angle and length, uh, in terms of, uh, maybe I'm, maybe I'm over rotating on this. The point is <laughs> <laughs> there's three sides to the, the fraud triangle and they are pressure opportunity and rationalization. Right. And, and the going, the going theory with the fraud triangle is all three of those need to be present. Yes. In order for fraud, if if one of them's missing, then you can't. Then fraud's not going to happen. And and I would say greed, and that's what I'm saying. Greed, I think, is an ever present com- contributor to the pressure side of the fraud triangle. So, yep. Uh, but the whole reason we're even talking about uh, all of this, and it's very interesting to me, and hopefully uh, to you, Caleb. But uh, it is. It, but but we're we're getting ourselves ready for what I I love this topic for today because today's podcast we're gonna unpack fraud in religion and as we unpack it we're gonna ask just like Brad Pitt did what's in the box like the fraud box that we're unpacking what's in the box. So, Caleb, when we talk about fraud and religion, we're, we're talking about fraud and religious institutions, and we're, we're going to be looking at two specific aspects of that. We're going to be looking at people stealing from a, a church or a, some sort of religious uh, organization, uh, and we're also going to be looking at trusted church leaders, like people who are in some sort of uh, position of religious authority stealing from the people who are supposed to be their flock, who they're supposed to protect and guide and things like that. Right, right. So what that means is that we are not going to talk about fraudulent churches like John Oliver's church, our Lady of Perpetual Exemption, or the Church of Scientology, or CrossFit. Like, we're not going to talk about those things. Right, that, yeah. That, that is out of the scope of this particular podcast. Exactly, yeah. Fake okay. churches themselves. For the for the most part, I think we might touch on it slightly, but yeah, for the most part, that's not what we're, lo- what we're looking at as those sorts of things. 
So what we're going to do is we're going to start by looking at people who stole from churches, and we're going to jump into a case that I find so entertaining. I guess it, I, I, I was almost going to say fascinating. It's not fascinating. It's just super, super entertaining to me. And that and that's the case of a nun in California who stole eight hundred and thirty five thousand dollars from a cat from the Catholic elementary school where she was the principal. But even before we get into that, Caleb, an interesting stat that I was able to find while researching for today's podcast is that one third. This is nuts. And, I, and this was said multiple times. One third of all congregations will experience theft each year. One in three. So basically, if you've gone to a church for three years, yes, it's very likely that you, that that church has experienced theft in the amount of time that you've been there. What are your feelings about that stat? Do you do you <laughs> want to call bullshit on it? Do you think it seems reasonable? I don't know if it seems reasonable. I mean, I think it's. I know fraud is widespread. Mm-hmm. I know that religious organizations, whether they be churches or nonprofits or whatever, are incredibly, uh, have incredibly limited resources, which means they are, they are at a high, uh, that they're highly vulnerable yeah. to fraudulent activity. Yes. So maybe one in three is reasonable, but gosh, that seems high. It seems really high. It yeah. seems really high. Never in any of the places where I found that stat, which again, I, I, I found it on multiple websites. The main one was uh, smartchurchmanagement.com. But it uh-huh. was, but like I said, I found, when I was looking at it, it was, it was multiple places. Were they uh, citing a study? Do you remember like, was, I, it, was, it, was it an academic study of some kind? Like, I did where not. Did... I am not that thorough of a researcher, <laughs> Caleb. So I didn't trace it back to that. And one of the things that they never said as well is the magnitude of a theft that they would consider a theft that a okay. congregation experienced in that right. particular year. So it isn't it it it's it it could be anything from like like sneaking sneaking a 20 out of the collection plate to right. uh to uh to $835,000 principal yeah, <laughs> in California taking $800,000 from a Catholic exactly. elementary school. Let's get into this case about the stealing. Let's get gun. into this. Let's get into this. This this sticky fingered uh, principal nun yep. nun principal. So uh, so our nun in question she, again, like we said, she's in California. She's the principal of a Catholic elementary school. She started stealing. In, she have a name, Greg? She, she have does. A name? Uh, yeah, her name is uh, it's Sister. Literally, Sister Mary Margaret is her <laughs> is her name, which I think perfect. I, I did not fact check this, but I think you remember Molly Shannon's character, superstar. Yes. I think her name was Mary Margaret, I believe. If you know her real name, leave it in the comments of the podcast. But regardless, that seems like if you're making up the name of a Catholic nun for a story you're writing, you're going to, Mary Margaret's going to cross your mind and then you're not going to use it because it's too on the nose. So. But yeah, it was Sister Mary Margaret. Uh, she started stealing in 2008 from her school. It was detected in 2018, and according to the uh, to the articles that I read on this, the $835,000. If you assume that she stole an equal amount for the entire time that she perpetrated this fraud, that would have been the equivalent of 14 students' tuition each year that just Jeez. went to what she stole. So. That's a that's a lot of tuition 
that you yes. that's, that's a half of a class tuition yeah. that she's taken. Mary Catherine Gallagher, by the way. Oh, okay. I was way off then. Yeah. Um it's fine. The uh but thought, but, we, thought we'd clear that up though while we had a moment. So here's the other thing about Mary Margaret. She was 80 when all of this came to light. Okay. She became a nun when she was 18. And part of her brand of nunnery, I don't there's a better word than brand uh branch her remember i'm only catholic adjacent adjacent yeah and anyways so yeah okay her her brand it could be a sister it could be a sisterhood her sister i like brand her brand and nunnery she had to take an oath of poverty that was part of it yep which is part of why i love the story because she's she has an oath of poverty yet she still stole eight hundred and thirty five thousand dollars uh despite that so may I may I just set up this timeline for a minute? Please. Okay. Mary Margaret becomes a nun at 18. Yes. At the age of hmm, approximately 67, 68, mm-hmm. she just she embarks on a life of crime. Right. She spent 50 years. Yeah, not, not stealing money not from the stealing. from the elementary school, right, right, <laughs> right, and then proceeds to spend ten years consistently stealing. I mean, I I think we'll get into this later in the podcast, but I think it is a quite a remarkable feat to go that length of time with not a not a shred of bad behavior that we know of, right, and then just. Pardon the expression, but breaking bad real hard. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. For, for real. <laughs> you know what I mean? Which, which is interesting too, because we know that there is a significant amount of fraud that just simply goes undetected. So she yes. may have been pulling off smaller schemes in those fifty years leading up to this, but this was the doozy, and this is the one that got caught. Um, hard, hard to say. I like your, I like your story better, where she was just, she was just. A-okay, perfect nun, and then all of a right. sudden she's like, what the hell? And she starts taking all the money. Here's how she – well, and, and Caleb, here's one of the things that was almost disappointing about this topic. I wanted to look at religion and fraud because I was thinking that there was going to be these, these, these very, very different set of circumstances, like different ways that people would be stealing the money from religious organizations. That's what was disappointing. It was very, very similar to stuff that we've seen in all sorts of frauds. And and, so, yeah. So, but what did you, did you have something specific in mind? Did you think that they would be like, would they, would they, would they be ransacking the valuables from the va- the Vatican or something? <laughs> like I just like I'm just trying to wonder like what kind of the nature of the the fraud in a religious organization that you kind of had imagined for yourself. Right. I I think I'd I'd imagine things like like them going, "Hey, we've got there's a we just found a new missionary that's in Papua New Guinea that's really struggling and we need everybody to give a special offering to the missionary in Papua New Guinea. And mm-hmm. then they give the money and the, and the, the nun just goes, Yoink, I'm the missionary in Papua New Guinea. Uh, and that, that's sort of, that's, that's what I was thinking. Or, or, you know, the, the, the thing of, like you said, skimming off of, uh, off of the uh, collection plate. But I, I think, I think with that sort of thing, 
that's probably a lot of the one third of congregations experience theft. Like you were saying is, is people taking a 20 out of the, out of the offering plate on their way yep. from, from passing it to go into the office to have somebody count it. Uh, but, but that's not going to be, that's not, you're not going to get $835,000 from the, from, you know, snatching coins out of the, the offering plates. Definitely so, not. So I was thinking, I was thinking stuff like that when it came to stealing from the church, uh, and similar from, you know, that'd be, that also would fold nicely into stealing from your congregation is the whole idea of, of a fake missionary that you're, you're raising support for and you're just pocketing the money. But those, right. those weren't the cases that we found at all. This one, this one, very, very easy, very much like the ones we saw before, uh, sister, yep. Mary Margaret, she had complete control over two bank accounts. One of the bank accounts was a saving, savings account for the Catholic elementary school. The other account was the convent account the convent's accounts for the expenses the like the living expenses of the nuns who were at the convent so those so what she would do is she would divert funds from the school savings account into the convent account and then she'd use the convent account to pay for her own personal expenses that that shouldn't have been approved but because she had sole control of the account she could do whatever she wanted so she just was like okay move the funds give them to me approved and again one of the ironies or one of the one of the hypocrisies of the whole thing that came out well I don't know, maybe not hypocrisies, but one of the things that she used her $835,000 to pay for was very large gambling expenses that she had, which again, Caleb, as a Catholic adjacent person yourself, what's yes. the, my, my impression of Catholicism has always been that gambling's not looked down on. It, it's kind of, it's pretty much okay. With yeah, it's pretty much okay. Like again, it depends on the Catholic you talk to, but like, okay. uh, you know, they they've had Catholic churches host plenty of bingo get-togethers. Right. right. So, um pretty much okay as as far as I can tell. Yeah, and I want to say, I mean, again, it's been a while since I've seen the movie, but I want to say Sister Act taught me that nuns were a-okay with the Las Vegas lifestyle. Absolutely. So there you go. But but strangely, so I live in Utah, and I this is I'm I'm right in the heart of the Mormon Church, and Mormons very much anti. They're not gambling's not okay for them at all. So uh, so again, that does that. That's just one of those uh, one one of the aspects of the story that kind of stands out. That it's interesting that that a nun would would have a gambling problem that she'd need. Eight hundred thousand dollars to help pay for. Yeah, it's a hell of a gambling problem. Hell of a gambling problem. And, hell of a gambling problem. And again, I mean to you know to 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 tie this in, and it's too early. This is not the segment where we talk about lessons learned. But one of the things that I have learned from fraud investigators is that gambling problems are. I mean, if we're going back to talking about pressure in the fraud mm. triangle. If you have a gambling problem, that's a huge pressure that's going to make you want to steal from anybody, especially your employer. So, yep. uh, so that's 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 one of the pre lessons learned. Back to how she did this. I mean, again, it, this as 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 I unpacked this case, it really seemed pretty pedestrian. She had sole account, sole sole uh, control over two different accounts, and then when she was questioned about stuff, she would falsify. Uh, reports, monthly reports, annual reports to help cover her tracks. Uh, very, very standard, very pedestrian for an embezzlement fraud. She also 
both altered and destroyed financial documents during an uh, when her when her school was being audited. And the other thing is her fraud was finally uncovered. Like I said, it was, it was uncovered in 2018 through an internal investigation, but that was after she retired, which is very interesting because one of the seven deadly sins is sloth. And I think that we've even touched on this in other episodes where we people, they will steal money from their employer going, this is an easy way to get money. And then they don't realize how hard it is to keep the lie afloat forever. And so like a lot of people wouldn't have retired if they were in her situation, which is the opposite of, of sloth. Uh, you see what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah. In other words, you're saying fraud is a hell of a lot of work. It, it sure is. It's, it is. It is not for the, it is not for the layabout. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> it's not for the slothful. You are going to be so righteously not slothful if you commit fraud in a, such a way that it, it forces you to perpetually continue your lies and falsify your documents and things yeah, like that. It's, it's kind of a, it's kind of, I, isn't, I think that's one of the richest ironies of a lot of the frauds that we look at yeah. in that people get into a situation and they think that it's going to make their lives better because they will have more money. They can pay their bills. They can, they can live more of a lifestyle that they want. And yet they end up working harder than yeah. they ever could have imagined. Yeah. And it is, it is a special kind of hell, I think, for people that go down that road that they did not foresee. Right. And zero th- sympathy for them as well. Where it's yeah. like, yeah, yeah, oh. work. If you're going to steal it, nobody has a problem that you have to work for it at that point, right? Um, it's kind of like I think that's th- this is a strong argument, Greg. This uh, is a strong argument, I would say, against for fraud? hiring for for no for hiring lazy people. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, yeah. You're t- these people can't work hard enough to steal money. And, They're and, not going to steal. At from least me. not to They're keep way us too lazy. We'd find out so quickly because these people would not work hard to cover their tracks. So. Yeah, let's right. get there. Yeah, so so super funny. Uh, again, some of the some fraud examiners that I've heard interviewed, uh, one of the one of the suggestions they have is that they they will prefer it if your entire account, like in a in the corporate world, if your entire accounting department is made up of people who just fucking hate each other, right? Because right. because if they do, they're going to turn each other in. A me- there won't be collusion to commit yeah. fraud. They'll be they'll be trying to they, they want to. Th- throw each other under the bus. They'll be looking at ways. That guy, I, I bet you that Becky's stealing money. I'm going to, I'm going to look through her stuff and just make sure. Cause I'm, I'm sure Turner, she is. Turns her in in a heartbeat. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So the, the epilogue of this whole thing. So she was discovered in, in, like I said, in 2018, shortly after she retired again, they didn't get into this in the stories that I read. I imagine what happened. She retired the new person like this, this stuff seems weird. And then they did the internal investigation. They go, Oh, we're missing $835,000. Huh? Hey, excuse me, sister, Mary Margaret. And so she, so her penalty and we, I, I don't know. I hope we don't get caught up in people's penalties more than we should, but her, here's what she was sentenced to. She was sentenced to one year in prison, Plus, she had to pay back eight hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars in restitution. Uh, so there's a couple things I don't get. First off, I mean she's eighty, so one year, and she's a nun. So I okay. can get it where a judge would be like, "Yeah, you don't have to spend that much time in prison. You've been a nun for sixty <laughs> years. It was 
probably a lot like prison. So you're good <laughs> with that. Right. But then I also go, you're 80. She's, she's a, she still has taken an oath of poverty and she's supposed to pay back $825,000 in restitution from age 80 to age dead. I don't think she's going to be able to pay that back in that amount of time. Yeah, she'll have to send whatever her reward in heaven is back down to earth, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that. Or she's going to have... I don't, I don't see it any other way. I, well, I do. Gambling. She, oh, there you go. She's got she's to double down on the ponies to be able to get that 825000 bucks back. So, uh, so there you go. So that's the case of the Stealing Nun. Dark Horse knows that building a scalable practice requires a significant investment of your limited time and money in order to build the infrastructure that you need. And it requires you to be consistently sourcing, developing, and implementing new technology in order to keep up with the marketplace. Instead of breaking your back trying to build a modern accounting firm, why not just join a firm that has already built what your practice needs to scale? Instead of trading your soul to merge into a giant traditional partnership model firm, why not join a firm that will allow you to keep your autonomy, retain ownership of your practice, and provide you with way more upside in a fast-growing progressive firm? Instead of trying to learn everything you need to know to serve your clients, why not shortcut your learning curve by collaborating with a supportive group of experienced and knowledgeable peers at Dark Horse? There's a better way to evolve your practice. There's a better way to be a CPA. Dark Horse invites you to visit abetterway.cpa to learn why firms are moving their practice to Dark Horse CPAs. Now, Caleb. Yes, Greg. We're going to switch lanes just slightly from people stealing from religious organizations to trusted religious leaders stealing from their members. And again, I thought, really, I mean, we touched on this before. I was thinking something would be like like the televangelists that are saying, hey, you have to send me all your money to receive blessings. And if you don't send all your money, not only are you not going to receive blessings, God's going to smite you. So send me all your money so you get blessings and don't get smitten. Here's my address. Send in your money. That's what I was thinking uh, this was going to be, and it was not. And part of the weird thing about that, Caleb, is that's not that's not considered fraud. If you make promises, if you put promises in God's mouth and tell people to send you money for those promises, you you can't be prosecuted for that. Mm. So that's that's interesting, isn't it? So that's that that seems to be a lot of that going on. Yeah, I think that. That is strange, but also understandable because you'd have to, I mean, basically to, I don't know, to win that case, wouldn't you have to go to court and prove that Santa doesn't exist? It's, it's basically miracle on 49th street. And we know that doesn't work out so good. Right. Yeah. So, all right. So if I may just back up for a second here. Yeah. What case are we talking about in this part of the show, Greg? We are talking about the very... We're talking about the case of Jim Baker and not the case of Jim Baker fucking his church secretary. This is the case of Jim Baker not... This is him not fucking the church secretary. And that's what we're going to be talking about. Because 
everybody because okay. Jim Baker, when you think of Jim Baker, mo- most people, people who Jim Baker means anything to them, the thing that they think about is they think about his massive sex scandal that was all over headlines in the in the eighties because it because it was big news. It was it was very much a cultural pop culture flashpoint of Jim Baker's fall from grace because of his sexual impropriety. But again, right. And like, just if, if, uh, for, for those folks who aren't aware of Jim Baker, he was a big time televangelist. Yes. He started being a televangelist in the seventies. Right. Yeah. And him and his wife, Tammy Faye Baker, they had like this, like little puppet. They started with like a little puppet show. They caught the eye of Pat Robertson, who was a televangelist at the time. And then they came up with this big, basically it was late night for Christians. Yeah. And they, and they, and they called this show PTL praise the Lord and legit. They had a lot of people watching. And so like, it was, it was kind of this big successful thing in kind of Christian media of the eighties. And if you if you come across some of the videos, I have to say, it was a very strange time. Like it was the clothes were weird, the people were weird, people were doing all kinds of weird things, yeah. including this kind of like fervent televangelism. The that in and of itself is pretty weird. But anyway, I just wanted to give a little bit of background there. And and when you get into just the strangeness of the televangelist genre, I feel like there's two there's two pe- two types of people in the world. There's the type of people who are bought in, and then there's the type of people who are just confused that anybody could buy in. And it, yeah. it seems like that's that's a very clear. There's there's I don't know if there's anybody. There's no in between. I don't there's think really there no is. In between. I really no. doubt there is. So so that's a strange thing about this. But here's the things that did not. Here here were things that were not fraud that Jim Baker did. He, oh, this it is was, fun. It was not fraudulent for him. It, it was not fraudulent. It was not illegal in any way for him to have sexual relationships with his church secretary, Jessica Hahn. That was not an illegal thing. It And, and a couple things just about Jessica Hahn that were interesting. He did pay her $265,000 worth of hush money out of the PTL coffers. And not only was it hush money, it was also she she was uh, she was coerced with the money to sign a statement that said that she initiated the affair with him. Right when afterwards, after she basically broke the NDA that she had, uh, it, it became very clear that she did not initiate it, and it's it likely in the Me Too era that we're in now. Uh, he, he likely would have see, received some kind of criminal punishment for his behavior with Jessica Hahn. Also, interesting fun fact: after the uh, the affair with Jessica Hahn, she did appear in Playboy three times, and she was on the cover twice. So that's what that's what. It, but but also, none, that's not that's not a crime to be a former church secretary who appears on Playboy. That's just very certainly not intriguing story. Certainly not a now, crime. Hush money paid from the ministry, also not a crime. crime? Nope, maybe. Nope. I don't think it's a crime because it's probably would would be seen by everyone who donated to the ministry not the way that they intended their general fund giving to be spent. But at the same time, you can pay somebody money to as part of your consideration for a contract that they sign. So. 
it's not technically that's not criminal and he was never found hey, and maybe at ptl maybe these were just part of uh you know general and administrative expenses who are we right. to say well and I, it seems like they're pretty flush with money so i don't know how much two hundred sixty-five thousand dollars really set them back at the old ptl and, and and that said, I, I imagine that there's some sort of uh, legal expert that's going to listen to this that goes, no, actually, that is illegal. Regardless of whether it, it technically is or not, it, that was not his downfall. He was never right. convicted of anything for paying hush money to Jessica Hahn, even though that that became very, very public that that had been the case. So so that's what I, I, I'm going off of two things. One, he didn't get tried for that even not just not just didn't get convicted he wasn't even tried for anything there which would make me tend to believe that whatever he paid and however paid it it wasn't illegal but also like i said just my own thought process i think you can pay somebody as part of consideration for a contract it's it's basically sure. money money to sign an nda that happens all the time and that's basically it what certainly does is. looks horrible but not not criminal not a good look yep another thing not that, a good look another thing that was not fraud is that uh, Jim and Tammy Baker, from the best that I could find from the research that I did, they were making in the 80s together combined, they were making about $500,000 per year in the 80s from their televangelist work. Now, just to Wait, put, like just like salaries? Yes. Or what? Yeah, that was okay. their salary. Yeah, because at, at, at one point I heard that Jim was making, well, actually when all this went down, they were asked to give a financial declaration for how much they were they were earning. And and uh, Jim said he was making a salary of $400,000 a year and Tammy said she was making a salary of $100,000 a year. But again, not a crime for a minister to make a butt ton of money from their ministry. That's not that's not criminal. As and as a matter of fact, uh, some other research, another data point that I found while researching for the podcast was that their network. So they started with the show PTL. They spun off PTL into its own satellite network. Their network was receiving. They, they had twenty million viewers every single God blessed day. Twenty million viewers. Okay. If you're the founder of a network, if you're a founder of anything, even today, that gets 20 million eyeballs every day, yeah, uh, half a million dollars a year, you kind of go, oh yeah, that actually, if anything, maybe that sounds a little low. That maybe might, on the low side. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So maybe on the low side. It was it was extravagant, incredibly extravagant for a minister, but not not at all unjustified. I can see how they could say, oh yeah, we're we probably should be making more than this, but we're just limiting it to. Uh, you know, half a mil a year, but from the outside looks horrible. So okay, so let me, if I may, uh huh, a lot going on here, mm-hmm. and yet nothing quite yet. We haven't got to the illegal stuff yet, Greg. Right. So the Bakers, for all intents and purposes, they have a wildly successful Christian media company mm-hmm. going on here. A a a network. Yep. That broadcasts, as I recall. To, to countries all over the world. Yeah, it was a worldwide and, network. And uh, they're making half a million a year in 1980s money, uh-huh. like Gordon Gecko shit, whatever, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Doing all right. Yeah. And yes, it seems like, I mean, so I think with all that as the backdrop, uh-huh. and then kind of just pivoting quickly back to the, the affair with Jessica Hahn, the affair is what like broke this thing open. Yes. Right? Yes. Okay. So 
start there. So the affair, okay. what happened when the affair comes to light, people are just like, oh, you know, hypocrisy, which yep. we like to talk about around here. Yep. So hypocrisy, right? But mm-hmm. then, then it even gets worse from there. Yeah. Well, and 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 I think, and this is me putting my own interpretation over the top of the facts of the story is you have a a very, very public religious figure, Jim Baker. He has a very public, what becomes a very public sex scandal. And as part of that, he's removed from his ministry. As part of him being removed from the ministry, he's asked to declare publicly what he's making from his ministry. That's a further disgrace to him. And now you've got 20 million people every day who've been tuning in, and arguably a big chunk of those have been given money to this ministry, who now have like uh, torches and pitchforks and are wanting this guy to burn. But there's nothing right on the top. There's like a lot of impropriety, but nothing illegal. But all of this focuses the attention of the public, including the IRS, on the PTL organization. And now they're looking through it with a fine-tooth comb and, and trying to figure out what happened. And here's what – and Jim, Jim Baker didn't end up going to jail. He did commit fraud. And here's what they found that was the actual fraud that sent him to jail. He created a, a, a theme park, a Christian theme park called Heritage USA in South Carolina? North Carolina. It, South, no, Carolina. South Carolina. In South Carolina. Yep. 2,300 acre theme park in South Carolina. And in order to fund this, because he was just a fundraiser, that's what he that's what he did. That's what the the televangelist like life is, is you're raising funds. So he says, We want to bring this blessing of the Lord to our country by opening this Heritage USA Christian theme park, and we need your support to make this happen. So what he did to be able to sell this and to be able to make money to build, to supposedly build the Heritage USA theme park, is he started offering lifetime partnerships, uh, which really translates to timeshare is yes. what, what it is. Because right. because here's what a lifetime partnership was. You donate $1,000 to the construction of Heritage USA, and what you get is you get a three four-day, three-night annual vacation to Heritage USA for life. It was a lifetime partnership. That's what you get. He claimed he was only going to send, and you have a breakdown of some of these numbers. I do. He claimed he would only sell 55,000 of these lifetime partnerships, and he ended up actually selling 140,000 lifetime partnerships. If you do the math with a three three night stay for 140,000 people, that's 1,150 hotel rooms that are filled every day just by your lifetime partners who are not spending more money now for that three-night stay. So for in perpetuity, you've got 1,150 rooms that are filled up forever because of the lifetime partnerships that you sent. And again, that's where that's where it's obvious that he, that he committed a fraud. He sold stuff that it was mathematically impossible to fulfill the promises that he gave for the money that he received from those lifetime partnerships. If you look at and and again, this was some of the stuff that different things I looked at broke things down differently. Uh, Heritage there was there was a hotel that only had 500 rooms in it at Heritage USA. The way that I saw it, that was the only that was the hotel that lifetime partners would stay at. So he needed uh, 1150 rooms and he only had a 500 room hotel. So not only can he not, he's not going to make any money because all his rooms are going to be full. He can't 
fulfill the three night a year vacation to the people who pledged their money. Do you want to break that down anymore? Is that well? Good no, the only the only thing. So you basically got the numbers. What I the only the only kind of nuance to that is that they built the original hotel, right? Yeah, and he said that only twenty five thousand of those partnerships would be sold, and he ended up selling sixty six thousand. That was for the original kind of hotel. And there okay. was another hotel, a second hotel that was going that was under construction, as I recall. And he said they would sell thirty thousand. So that's okay. twenty five thousand and thirty thousand. That's where the fifty five thousand comes from. The right. second hotel would have thirty thousand partnerships. He actually sold seventy four thousand right. partnerships. And so the sixty six so where the hundred yeah right. So that's where the hundred and forty thousand partnerships. And so almost triple the the <laughs> right triple what he what he claimed that he was going to be selling. And at a, and like you say, at a thousand dollars a pop, then, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, uh, well over $150 million fraud. Yeah. 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 Tons of, tons of money that he took that he should not have. So he was, so that, that was the crime that he was found guilty of, uh, under this, intense public scrutiny for his other misdeeds and and indiscretions and as part of that with this whole with the heritage usa scandal he was sentenced in 1989 he was sentenced to 45 years in jail plus a half a million dollar fine which a half a million so let's compare the fine jim baker's fine versus mary sister mary margaret's fine he stole 150 million dollars from yeah. his viewers, and his fine was a half a million bucks. Sister Mary Margaret stole $835,000, and her fine was $825,000. And I'm confused why she got $10,000 off of her of her fine. Jim Baker got a ridiculous amount reduced from what he actually stole from his people. So that that's confusing to me. I don't understand the justice system when you compare things like that. Then the epilogue of this, so he was sentenced to 45 years. His sentence was later reduced to eight years, I think on appeal. Is that what? I think it was appealed and then it came back up to at eight years. I don't recall. I don't recall if, I mean, I don't remember reading anything about a successful appeal. I do read something about like a reduction of sentence. Okay. And so I don't, that isn't necessarily the same an thing. Appeal. Yeah. Uh, maybe but, there's just a, yeah. like a petition of the court to a reduction of sentence or something like right. that. Yeah. But yeah, ultimately his, his sentence was reduced and he was released after five years. Re- yeah. After five. Yeah. Years. So he was, he was supposed to be 45 years and ultimately he just served five. So that was, uh, that's the story of Jim Baker and his fraud, which again, a little bit disappointing because it was really just a it was just a real estate scam. Which again, as I was looking into this, into all, I, I was trying to find the the coolest, juiciest story of fraud of someone in a you know in a position of authority stealing from people. It's weird how many of them were either investment or real estate scams. That they were like, you know, I, I, I'm a pastor. I'm a former pastor. You trust me. Here's an investment that won't go wrong. Give me your entire life savings for retirement, and and you'll get all this money back. And plus, it's probably there's blessings because it's maybe faith based in some manner. 
and then they they screwed the people. So is again, I'm going yawn. I wanted something a little bit more, you know, salacious than yeah. I investment mean, I, fraud. I, I I share your desire. I think for something a little bit more novel. Mm-hmm. But I have to say, if you're gonna do a big fraud, Greg, mm-hmm. you're gonna probably like the fastest way to a big <laughs> motherfucking fraud <laughs> is a, either a Ponzi scheme. Or some kind of some kind of other investment. In this case, like this is a this is a timeshare real estate kind of scam. Yeah, I mean, if 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 you want the money to get big, I mean, that's the only way, right? Yeah, like you say, if if you're doing some kind of like oh the 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 far flung missionary and da, 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 like you're just not you're not gonna raise you're not you, you might you might end up you know uh, swindling people for you know maybe a hundred grand. But like the big bucks, you want the big Jim Baker bucks. And uh, yeah, it's going to be an investment scam. I think that's the only way. Yeah. If you, if you want to, if you want to steal all the money, you got to play the hits pretty much. Greg, did we learn anything? We... I, yes, I mean, despite oh, okay, good. Despite oh. the fact that I multiple times said that I was super disappointed with these stories, I think that there's a lot that we can learn from this. A lot of things that we should highlight based on these cases that we have. First off, with the with the case of Sister Mary Margaret stealing from the Catholic elementary school, one of the things, and this was really part of I know what drew me to this as a topic, is that I know that churches and other nonprofits are victims of fraud to a higher degree than other organizations. And not not just uh, more instances of fraud, but also like if you like proportionally to their revenue, a higher yeah. the, the amount that is stolen from them is a higher proportion to their revenue than than other companies. And that's right. that's what we're seeing and that's what we see uh, like I said, in all nonprofits, and arguably, it's even more so in religious organizations for a number of reasons. And and we'll and we'll get to that. The main reason we're going to get to in a second. The first thing, and we hi- I feel like Caleb, we highlight this every single time, is the biggest thing that would have helped with the the case of Sister Mary Margaret is simply separation of duties. She yep. somehow she had sole control over two very significant accounts, especially I'm thinking the one, the one where she had a, a complete control over the account used to pay for all of the nuns expenses. And since she was a nun, that was her. I'm like, Oh, and that, that seems like a, not just a conflict of interest, but just a, a just basic separation of duties, right. uh, negligence that happened right there. And, and separation, like what, what are the basics of separation of duties? Well, uh, oh gosh, you're really putting me on the spot well, here. Well, I, I can, yeah, I can tell you from my own experience because because oh yeah, please do, please do. My my company experience when I came in, uh, we were in the midst of having to deal with a pretty significant fraud in our company, 
And the guy who pulled it off, the, I'm convinced that the only reason why he's not in jail is because of basic separation of duties. He was never able to sign. He 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 would authorize the checks. He'd cut the checks. He he never had uh, the authorization authority on any of the checks. So other so like the owners of the company had to sign the checks. Now, granted, he just would hand him a pile of checks and go, "Hey, I need all these checks signed." And they're right. doctors, and they're always busy. So it's not like they could really. And he and he'd bring them to different people. So it's it's a little bit of a bullshit control. But I do think it reined things in a fair amount for him. And that's one of the basic things: is you don't. If she's in charge of like the administration of those accounts, she definitely shouldn't have been able to sign the checks herself. Right. There should have been at least that. So that's a well. And bare if, I, bones. if I, you'll have to, you'll have to. Keep me honest here, but like it's the authorization bit or the approval, mm-hmm. right? That's one piece. Yeah. The actual signature or the execution. Yes. Right. And then it's the actual custody. So, yes. So, you, so the person who actually authorized it doesn't also have access to either the mechanisms that approves the payment or in the olden days, like the physical checks. Right. And that's so. Yeah, that's how I see it too. You have you have the physical asset that should be the, the custody of the physical asset should be different from the administration of the funds, yep. which should be different from the authorization to disperse funds. Those yep. three, the, execu- the, the execution, yeah, or the signature, yeah. Yep. So Got those it. those yep. are the three things. I mean, again, there's basics. You can separate duties ad nauseum within that. But, uh, but yeah, those are, those are some of the basics that, that we have. In and it isn't, of- it isn't as though, I think we've, we've mentioned this in the past, but you don't need like sophisticated financial knowledge to accomplish separation of duties. No, you literally just need people who can say, this is my job. I always do this job. You can't do this job. Right. Like it's really, it, I don't know. It, th- yeah. That's what I think is so kind that that's what I find so bewildering sometimes is that you don't need a big team. You don't need people with special knowledge. You just need people who understand their role in this little system and they always follow their role and that's it. And it should, it should catch the the vast majority of stuff. Right. I, and I, I, I totally agree. You don't need a very large staff to be able to accomplish just the bare bones of separation of duties. However, I also think for people who are not trained in finance or accounting, I don't think that separation of duties is necessarily intuitive. I think they have to have somebody come in and go, Oh no, the way to do this properly is have, you do this part, you do this part, and you do this part, and never swap. And that, yes, and, so so I think setting it and up, you don't co- and you don't cover for each other. Exactly, exactly. Right. Don't don't cover. Don't uh, do anyone any but, favors. But but here's but okay. But then that leads into uh, strangely that leads us into another one of the lessons learned that I have here, which is especially in volunteer organizations, you need to rotate people out of financial roles regularly. Yes. So. So like we're saying, have different duties, have the separation of duties happen, but then never let anybody like stagnate in that position in your church. So ba- yeah. it's it's basically term limits of people who are in charge of finances at any kind of nonprofit, especially a religious organization. You have to right. have some, like I said, for lack of a better word, basically term limits where you can't be. And the reason for that 
is because a like sister Mary Margaret, if she had been rotated out earlier, if she was rotated out after two years, they would have found her fraud after two years instead of after 10. Cause they found it right after she retired, which is basically getting rotated out. And the other thing is she was the principal of that school for much longer than the 10 years that she was stealing from the school. I'm convinced that a lot of fraudsters aren't geniuses. They just are in the role for long enough that something weird happens. and They go, oh, that's weird that that happened and nobody noticed. And then, yeah. then all of a sudden it's like, oh, so that's something I could do to steal all the money from here. And if you don't let people stay in the job long enough to see those the weaknesses, the material weaknesses in your internal controls, because every company has weaknesses in their internal controls. You get people out before they can even identify them, or at least if they have identified them, hopefully before they're corrupted to where they actually act on it. And at the very least, you rotate them out before they can go crazy and get $835,000 out of the organization. So that's another that's another lesson that we have to learn. That's a good lesson. Thank you. Uh, my biggest lesson that I learned, and I think this is very, very much applicable specifically to churches, is that churches need, as an internal control, they need to foster distrust of people. Almost like I was saying from that um, from that fraud examiner who said that your accounting department should be loaded with people who hate each other. It's it's mm. not that, but it's like that in a church. The whole idea is we love each other. We are, you know, and, and we're 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 a, we're a family. We're the body of Christ, or whatever the analog of that is under, in other faith traditions. And because of that, you know, we preach all the time that lying and stealing is wrong. So if somebody's handling the finances here, they're not going to be lying or stealing about that. So there's like this, there's a presupposed trust of everyone who's a fellow parishioner at whatever religious organization you're a part of. And that needs to go away because without, well, it's the idea of professional skepticism as as like a a ethical construct within the accounting profession. Because do you remember, do you remember the first time the concept of professional skepticism was introduced to you, Caleb? Probably my college auditing class. You, well, but but what I'm wondering, Probably. do you remember how you reacted to the concept initially? Probably with indifference. Okay. I was I was like, oh, I almost I, I was like, oh, that's cool. I felt like a sense of freedom to like be a dick at auditing. Cause it's like, no, you gotta go in and you've got to assume stuff is wrong and have them prove to you that it's right. And I think this is the same kind of thing. Go in. If you're at a church, you've got to, you got, especially if you're armed with the fact that one third of every religious organization uh, is subject to, is, is the victim of theft uh, every year, then you go and go, no, people are stealing from this church. And if you assume that, then you're going to set things up right. But but the exact opposite is the culture that we find in every church where it's like, no, everybody here is cool. Nobody's going to do that. This is God's money. Who's going who's gonna to believe in God who can see everything all the time and then steal from God who can see everything? Nobody's going to do that. And so that's, I feel like that's the basis for this ubiquitous trust that's within churches, which is why they are subject to all of this theft. All, all the time. Does that make sense? 
It does. I mean, I, I, I agree with you. I, I think that it's almost as though I don't, you know, I'm, I'm not part of one of these organizations. I don't know how you would properly like approach, you know, someone in a leadership position, but you almost have to kind of think about it in the way of, look, yes, this is a community of like-minded people, a people of faith, whatever it is, da 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 da. But these are also human beings, right? And human beings make mistakes, and so even if God is omnipotent and can see all and 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 knows all and this and that and whatever, he he doesn't really execute segregation of duties. So in best <laughs> in in the interest of protecting our community from itself, which is made up of uh, sinners and, and flawed people and whatnot, you know, th- as a practical matter, these are something, th- these are the things that we have to do. Right. And it's not because we don't trust people, but because we're, we're, we're trying to pre- protect ourselves from ourselves. Right. I don't know. No, I I'm kind of like, I'm, I, I may have lost the thread there, but that's kind of, that's kind of the way I think about it is like you almost have to hack your own brain. Even for people of faith, I know it's a bit of a stretch, but it's like you only have to hack your own brain. Like you can still have faith, but then you also have to not have faith in your fellow man uh-huh. as a practical matter of protecting the yeah, finances right. of this organization. Right. Exactly. And and it, well, first off, I want to say I love your religious leader voice uh, that you used. That was fantastic. <laughs> uh, second, I want to say it can be a lot easier than even what you're saying where you just have this stuff set up, these internal controls, and you yeah. say, this is how we do it here. And if someone says, you don't trust us, then go, uh, maybe you shouldn't have so much pride, brother Newquist, and you move them out of the, the position as right. part of the, the accounting stuff. So yes. uh, so, so you can you can pull that back. Uh, you know, just say this is how it is, and if you if if you have any kind of personal issue with how we handle the finances of the church, then maybe finances is the right calling for you at this church, right. and we can get you teaching the the preschoolers instead where you should be. One um, one thing to bring this home, Greg, that I may ask you: Yes, how do you like in the terms of the Baker story? The Baker story is like this big, you know, audacious, you know, kind of almost comedic fraud mm-hmm. in terms of like just uh hypocrisy and yeah. and all these different things that kind of almost it's almost a parody almost right yeah and so i mean what do you think from something like that that's so big and 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 admittedly it's kind of an older story it's almost you know it's been 35 years or whatever it's been but like what do you looking back on something like that like what what's the big takeaway from just a big visible kind of spectacle like that. Again, I would say that the one thing in terms of even what we just listed here that that would have helped to either minimize or eliminate the the Heritage USA fraud is again distrust is going he he says he's only going to not only did he he say he was only going to sell a certain number of those lifetime memberships and then he he obviously sold way more. There should have been somebody else looking over those numbers and said, how many have we actually sold? But the distrust even with that, because because you get in and, and it gets convoluted because again, from what you see from a lot of these televangelists is they're like, if you question this, then you're not trusting the Lord. You mm. don't have faith in God. 
that we can sell, we can sell as many of these once as, as we want. And God's going to still make this happen because it's part of his plan. So that's, that's a corruption of trust to the point where you're, you're, uh, using it, you're, you're using faith as a weapon to force people to trust you. So again, if there's distrust and you have people double checking the numbers and not just, he said he was going to sell, uh, 55,000 and he sold 140,000, but even just going, okay, wait a second. Even if you just sell 55,000, how are we going to actually make <laughs> make money at those places? <laughs> right. That's the kind right. of questions that you need to be asking. And if you're not asking those, and and if you're not taking the Lord will provide as an answer, then, right. then you're going to, that, that's, that's what you need to do in those situations. Because again, any normal business, if you're doing what he's doing, if you've got other people who are, oh. who are looking at it, it's like, this is not okay. That doesn't, that it doesn't even that fraud doesn't even get out of the starting no, blocks. No, and then and then there's some other things too. I mean, just in terms of like it, having an internal audit or, or yep. an external audit. Either I mean, we've talked about that on other episodes as well. External audits they have caveat after caveat saying we are not here to find the fraud. That's we if we do, that's awesome. But that's not our ultimate purpose is to detect fraud. But internal audit, absolutely, that's their job, and so. You need to establish that internal audit function, especially if you've got a giant organization that's bringing in millions and millions of dollars like PTL. You should have a group that's dedicated, that has their own independence, their own authority, can check everything that they have, have ways to blow the whistles. But again, uh, that for a lot of people, from what I gather from a lot of organizations that are in the televangelist uh, world, having an internal audit function inside your organization almost seems like an antithesis to the faith and prosperity gospel that they're preaching. Right. So, uh, so yeah. So, so you're really in a rough <laughs> spot where it's like, how do they not do this? Well, maybe just if they're not, if they don't have the culture of televangelists, but then how can you be a televangelist without a televangelist culture? That's not for me to figure That's out. That's not for me I, to figure out, but, but you're right. It, that one's a lot. I mean, I can, I can go, I mean, here's some other things just real quick. I'll burn through these for the Mary yeah. Margaret one, um, two, uh, two person cash handling. If, and this goes back to like the, you know, passing the offering plates is that nobody should be, uh, handling the cash on there. there. There was a case that I did stumble upon where there was an usher who stole several thousand dollars, but I don't, I don't even think it was in the double digits of thousands of dollars from his church because he was in charge of the passing the plate on the balcony. He, he, and one other guy were both in charge of passing the plate on the balcony, but there was two sets of stairs down from the balcony. And one of the guys would go down one set of the stairs and the other guy would go down the other one. And on the way down the stairs, this guy had pocket money. And so oh. that's so you don't want that to happen. Two person cash handling, counting, and transporting that should be part of your internal controls at any sort of church. Again, audits. Most churches don't have audits. There are CPA firms that they specialize in auditing churches. If you've got a church and you can afford an audit, get an audit because it's really, especially in this, it's going to bring things to light, and they're going to be able to show you some of these basics of 
uh, internal controls that that you that are not intuitive, like we said before. Uh, background checks and credit checks should also be things that you do from anybody who's part of the financial side of your religious organization. Because if someone has a criminal background check, like I don't know, a criminal background, like maybe they murdered their grandparents, that's something that should be a red flag that prevents them from being in charge of them of really anything at your organization and credit checks also because if somebody has just some real horrible credit that's going to be a red flag that they already have the pressure side of the fraud triangle that they're going to have to work through for that so those are some great internal controls i mean other than like i said audits i don't see how any of those would have helped with uh, the jim baker thing Give him a background check. He's fine. Give him a credit check. He's fine. You know, uh, cash handling. I I don't think he handled the cash. So that's, you know, all those things. Uh, the, the Jim Baker one's a different, a different beast in terms of trying to uh, detangle that and figure out how to prevent it. Yeah, there's not a lot of accountability in that particular situation. And I mean, that is, you know, you have this charismatic figure who's at the center of this thing. And he's asking people for money. It's not that different from Bernie Madoff, right? Where yeah, charismatic person who has a track record, has a lot of had have a lots of people's trust, and people want to give him money, and he's not going to turn it away, you right. know. And so, right. yeah, and I mean, it's it's even even made more difficult because in the case of you know, in case of a Ponzi scheme like Bernie Madoff's, you know, they had the the two bit auditor who did kind of like the the two bit audit <laughs> right. to at least like give the appearance that something was going on. Right. There's nothing that I've seen that PTL was doing anything like that whatsoever. Yeah. And so, yeah, you're really at it really, like you say, you do weaponize people's trust in a way that is, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's potentially far more dangerous than your average investment scam. Because because yeah, of that, yeah, and and it's funny you brought up accountability, and I know that was actually a big buzzword. I, I used to be very very religious in my my younger days, and we talked about accountability all the time. Not not so it didn't really come up with financial stuff for the church, but it just came up in terms of you know hold yourself accountable so that you're not committing sins. But it's weird because all of that accountability is kind of like a confession in the Catholic in Catholicism where that's that's part of holding yourself accountable to the standard by which you want to live but it's a self your accountability is self-imposed so yeah. you're it, it, by and large in religious organizations when you talk accountability that's you being vulnerable and being transparent to the other people in your religious organization which means if you're not in if you don't want to be vulnerable and you don't want to be transparent the accountability likely won't be forced upon you. So again, it goes back to the fact you have to have those in place. But if you're in an organization that's corrupt from the top, uh, that's just not going to happen. All right, guys, that's it for this episode. Just remember, if you steal from a church, do not confess it to the priest without your lawyer present. And also remember, Scientology is not a real religion, no matter how many times they threaten your life or the life of your family members. Hey, if you are interested in continuing the conversation with us, you can please 
uh, feel free to drop us a line by sending us an email to ohmyfraud at earmarkcpe.com. But Caleb, if people want to chat with you specifically and not with me, how can they find you out there in the internet? I'm on Twitter at CNewquist and LinkedIn at my full name, Caleb Newquist. Greg, where are you? On the internet. Uh, I am also the best place to find me, same places as you, Twitter, uh, at Greg Kite, and LinkedIn. I'm Greg Kite, CPA, spell kite with a Y, not with an I, just like my ancestors who had horrible, horrible spelling. Oh My Fraud is written by Caleb Newcast and Greg Kite. Our producer is Blake Oliver. Music supervision, sound design, editing, and mixing by Zach Frank. If you like the show, leave us a review or share it with a friend. And be sure to subscribe on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Join us next time for more avarice swindlers and scams from stories that will make you say, Oh, oh my, my fraud! fraud. <laughs>